Hello, and welcome to The Politics of Gender, Episode 2. We're so excited to have you tuning in to the, to the juiciest soap opera on TV right now, where we discuss man, woman, uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we want to start over again. <laughs> no, we're going to push through. So, I opened my uh, email inbox and okay. found a whole chunk of um, requests for my dissertation, and this terrified me. Mostly because I don't... Because your dissertation was obviously just perfect and flawless, and you're very excited to well, share that yeah. with everyone. <laughs> it's, more, it's more that if after releasing episode one, someone was like, I want to read a dissertation, I, I cannot imagine a situation that would be like, and now I would like to read someone's dissertation. So my presumption <laughs> is, oh dear, people are actually going to be listening to this intently. Um, and that's wonderful. Theoretically, it's what we hope for. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's like, okay, well, let's let's get down to business. So I, I just wanted to say, as we begin our adventure into the shaky realms of queer theory, um, gender theory, and the like, that this podcast, this work, will require patience. Mm -hmm. um, we are going through a whole host of of competing theories, um, ideas, doctrines, and trying to bring people to a point where when we say things like sexual difference is the enabling difference for the intellectual operation in the human person, we don't just sound like we're insane people. Yeah, it does sound pretty absurd on its face. I, I remember when <laughs> you were proposing this and then I went and read the dissertation, it took me a while to understand what it was that you were actually saying. Sure. Uh, yeah, I th but I, I do think it's I do think it's brilliant. I'm very excited about it. I think part of it is it's like, well, how well then how do you then bring people? How how do you how do you educate? How do you? Um, and I don't really know. I don't know a good way to do it. So for for us in discussions, we mm -hmm. thought, okay, well, why don't we just sort of walk the path that we think we walked? So let's recollect our own steps um, towards both our frustrations with popular conceptions of gender on both sides of the argument um, and our insights. Like how did we get there? So in some ways this is a chronological work. We're kind of remembering where we were and then trying to walk on our previously trodden path in the hopes that by walking with us, the conclusions, the locations we arrive at will seem natural as opposed to kind of an instant like dropping you onto normandy. yeah and and for me my my goal is just to help people walk through uh your dissertation and what you are writing and hopefully make make sense of it <laughs> yeah although i think you're hedging i think you're gonna um i think you're hedging because then i'm the only one who's to blame for anything absolutely ludicrous it's like i'm just here to explain the dissertation can't blame me i think i have a great role <laughs> That's okay. exactly why I'm here, Mark. So so here we go. So what we want to talk about right now is um, Judith Butler. But I think it's fair to say that we should give some inkling of um, where we're going. Yeah, just kind of a, a teaser of where the dissertation is, is headed in general. Yeah, because I realize like we, we are going to very seriously tackle biological arguments we're going to very seriously tackle the Thomistic arguments we're going to very seriously tackle the communio school arguments we're going to very seriously tackle um, not just that catholic side but then um the 
kind of thinkers we're going to read right now on queer theory and gender theory side of things. Okay, so that's going to happen, but um, since it's going to be a lot of work, I just want to point to something in that for people maybe unfamiliar with the Catholic tradition or who mm -hmm. might have a sense that the Catholic tradition and the kind of conservative tradition of a biological, procreative, um, exhaustive account of gender is um, it, is sufficient. Right. Um, so this is in um, John Paul II's uh, Wednesday Audiences, uh, Man and Woman. He created them as the title of this translation. Uh, uh, Ruben assures me that the translation is awful. And so <laughs> with that in mind, I presume some of the words are correct and that some of the meaning will come through here. Um, I just want to read something so we can understand the distance and the difficulty that the Catholic tradition makes out of the uh, limitation or reduction of sexual difference to its genuine procreative biological significance. To be clear, this is not, as you'll, you'll hear, it's not a destruction of this as, a, as real. But um, it's more of a yes and. Uh, this is true, but moving beyond that. Yeah, and not just like like moving beyond it because what it is is a transcending of the biological and the procreative. So I'll stop so with explaining that. it without reading it and just read it. Okay, so this is John Paul II. It's in the um, general audience of January 13th, 1982. Paragraph four and a little bit of... No, we'll just do four. Okay. Um, yet the original and fundamental meaning of being a body as also of being as a body, male and female, that is precisely its spousal meaning, is united to the fact that man is created as a person and is called to a life uh, in communion of persons. Marriage and procreation do not definitively determine the original and fundamental meaning of being a body nor of being as a body, male and female. Marriage and procreation only give concrete reality to that meaning in the dimensions of history. The resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, indicates the closure of the historical dimension. And so it is that the words mm. from Jesus, when they rise from the dead, they will take neither wife nor husband not only express clearly what meaning the human body will not have in the future world, but allow us also to deduce that the spousal meaning of the body in the resurrection to the future life will perfectly correspond both to the fact that man as male female is a person created in the image of likeness of God and to the fact that this image is realized in the communion of persons. Um, so okay. one way of saying what John Paul is saying is that marriage and procreation is an authentic manifestation of the meaning of male and female, but that meaning moves beyond mm -hmm. those manifestations, which are, he, he emphasizes that that is being a historical reality because there's going to be a future historical reality when we enter into the beatific vision where that's not going to be a part of our glorified existence. Mm -hmm. And so does that render the meaning of male and female uh, totally meaningless, we would say that's not the, the church's tradition. Right. In fact, it's precisely that 
our biological and procreative experience, the very thing that we're trying to point to as being like, well, this is it. This is what gender means. This is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. Um, that, that this is in fact a sign of a greater reality than itself. So it's, mm -hmm. it's um, not to say a reality that isn't, I mean, <laughs> this is where it can get kind of complicated because I'm not saying that the sign is irrelevant or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Precisely as biological, as embodied, as procreative, as complementary, all of that, which is real, um, is revelation, is a sign of a greater mystery that we're trying to understand. Um, and so by limiting it to, to our, our vision of we can only determine the meaning of uh, gender and of male and female only from this limited sphere of procreation and, and marriage, then we're discounting the words of Christ. We have no place for them. We can't really make sense of them. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one of the places where the frustration is not with theology of the body, but we just... We want to understand what that means. We, yeah, exactly. We want trying to to more thoroughly explore the Catholic tradition, especially with reference to our patristic fathers and trying to tie that those kinds of very bold claims into the whole. And I think what's exciting about that approach is that that angle has a capacity of engaging with the questions about gender that are happening right now yeah. and with queer theory mm -hmm. in a way that mm, we just, we, we haven't been able to get that far. We've just run into roadblocks. Right. I mean, you put it this way. If you, if you have the conception that uh, to be a man or to be a woman is something that results from this material biological operation um, in an exhaustive manner. So that's it. That's all it is then it makes sense why people have this great difficulty or this great pain in saying like, well, look, I've got these variations and even perversions or difficulties within this material procreative reality. So if you just argued that um, you add up all of this anatomy and genetics and, and um, desires and it equals man, then if I'm shifting all of the uh, sort of parts, why do I not come up with a different whole? Why am I not, in fact, a woman or, in mm -hmm. fact, a third yeah. gender or, in fact, something else? Granted, I don't think that this is a good argument, and I'm not saying every Catholic is making this argument at all, um, but it is a, an extremely common sense rejoinder. Yeah. Whereas once you say, look, all of those things that you just described, they're real. If there is variation, if there is difficulty, it's not as much of a like being cast out into an abyss because you're saying these things are signative of the full transcendent meaning of man and woman, of sexual difference itself. And so that view, that which I just read in, in John Paul II, I think can handle variation and difficulty, not annul it, like recognize it as such, it's, it is difficult, um, but not throw you into this position where you're like, well, I guess then I am excluded from the creation. I'm excluded from this male-female um, creation that was proclaimed to be at the beginning, and I am, in fact, some other thing, um, because it prioritizes the transcendent over its material, concrete existence in history. Um, and I I take comfort in that. I, I hope others would take comfort in that uh, vision, too. Yeah, and I think with that, uh, we can turn to, to the next task. Yeah. A hand. Because we'll get to that stuff, I think, in, in, in really great detail. Just devote entire episodes. We can bring on people to debate opposing views, like Matt Walsh. I think he has a kind of biological sort of science argument. Matt, yeah. come on, buddy. Debate. Let's do it.
But if we're going to to walk through uh, your dissertation yes. and walk through that the trodden path, <laughs> that angle, then the first thing that we we wanted to do when we we're thinking about the podcast is to actually get into queer theory, yeah. meaning Judith Butler, yep. gender trouble. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be doing a book club of sorts. Yep. So you are welcome to follow along. Please do the reading. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, I I um. I have one extra copy, so if you email me in time, you can have mine. It is also a free PDF online. It is, yes. Which is where I got mine. So what do you want to talk about specifically today in Gender Trouble? Today, uh, I think we need to talk about it, but I think we also need to back up and talk about postmodernism sure. first, because one of one of the difficulties in reading this this text is that she's coming from a, a different language and a different worldview. Totally. And if you're not familiar with the language, everything is completely incoherent. Yeah, it I, really does <laughs> not make sense. You have to struggle your way through. Yeah, but if you have the background of the basic principles that she's working with, and if yes. you have the the language that she's working with, yeah, totally. then suddenly the arguments start to become intelligible, and then you can actually engage with I, it. So this is an old book that I've had for a while, and I read it at first in like the midst of my frustration. I was all I had was a biological sort of understanding, and I was like, all right, I'm going to read this obviously wrong person. And I have the most furious like notes on the side. I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Underline. Makes no sense. Uh, underline, underline. Okay, so can an asteroid be a gender? Question mark. I, mean, like, I, I was a little bit young. But it's funny because I've gone over this book again and again. And it's like, it's not that I think like, oh, I figured out why she's right. Not quite the contrary. I think I figured out why she's wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, you're right. Like the language makes more sense um, having read other postmoderns and kind of understanding where she comes from a little bit yeah yeah and i I think i think uh understanding postmodernism really helps people to engage what's going on in this century in general with just academic conversations across the board Mm. yeah um i i remember when i was first being taught about postmodernism it was all right and then here's when where things just start to make no sense there is no narrative there is no pattern there is no meaning there is there's yeah Everyone just kind of like drop the ball. All right, explanation's done. It's over. Yeah. Um, so in order to help us do that, I have a second book. This is called Cynical Theories. It's by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Mm-hmm. So um, if I am remembering correctly, they consider themselves left-wing liberals. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they wrote a book uh, breaking down postmodernism and how it ends up in critical theory, which is precisely what gender trouble is. That's what queer theory is. It's critical mm-hmm. theory applied to gender. So towards the beginning of their book, they lay out two basic principles of postmodernism and then four major themes. And so I was thinking that we could just go through those yeah, and break it down for people a little bit. So there's two principles. One is a knowledge principle. The second is a political principle. And they uh, describe the knowledge principle as being radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable and a commitment to cultural constructivism. Totally. Yeah, you see this like from the very beginning of Butler. In the title itself, the idea is to trouble gender. So um, it has a, a few meanings, but one of the biggest ones points to this knowledge principle. She's not so much about the business of saying, okay, she's absolutely not about the business of saying, yeah. I have found some true 
thing about gender or some authentic form of gender, which is being missed by all this male-female binary stuff. She is saying, I want to trouble what you say is your certainty about mm-hmm. man being male and female. She, she is about radical skepticism. Totally. Can, can we really know? So, so I think that's another helpful thing when understanding queer theory, or at least what's happening on the academic level, because that's very different than what's happening on the popular level. Yeah. Um, at least for Butler, she's not trying to say that this is what gender identity is. She, she is making no claim for herself, really. Right. Um, she, she just asks a lot of questions, which a, a good, good portion of the text is just her asking questions. It's one of the most frustrating parts of it, because if you go to the text and are trying to say, what do you think? Um, yeah, I couldn't figure that out till the end. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is very much like a, um, you know, we talked about amnity-based sort of modes, and this is definitely one, you know, like the the idea is to break down um, strongholds of certainty and to question um, in order to reveal a kind of fundamental contingency about gender. So it's not so much that she wants anyone to think any particular thing as much as they wants them to sort of throw up their hands and say like, well, I guess we could have constructed gender otherwise. I guess it could have been different, but it's not. I guess that this is actually an effective power. Yeah. I mean, it it is an effective strategy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basically saying, so you think that you think that this definition encompasses the whole, Mm -hmm. well, uh, what about this outlier here? And what about this outlier over here? If your definition is really sufficient, it should account for these right. outliers. And if it doesn't, then I'm 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 troubling things. Right, right, right. Um, but I I do want to back up a little bit with the knowledge principle in general um, and understand why postmodernism came to this conclusion in the first place, mm-hmm. because it is um, you can think of it either as a reaction to modernism or really just a playing out of modern thinking, which begins with a very confident rationalism that we can know things, we can logic everything out. Um, And then eventually with, um, I mean, uh, this conversation is happening with many different thinkers, but Freud seems like a a prominent one for me because he offers the suggestion that perhaps our, I don't know, Perhaps our our reason is a little bit unsteady mm-hmm. um, because if we're being driven by these unconscious co- unconscious motives, uh, I can't trust my reason in the same way. I have to start being skeptical about why I believe what I believe. Yeah. Uh, and if you keep following this path and if you are being honest about it, um, then you do run into radical skepticism. How is it that I can really know anything at all until you get to this point at the end of the road where you don't think that you can come to objective knowledge. That's not a possibility. Totally. Because everyone is just, if, if, if all you are is stuck in your own head and your own perspective, there's no possibility of going outside of that as this casual observer and being able to see, okay, here's my perspective and here's the objective reality. Do these things line up? That's not a possibility for you. You're just stuck in your bubble. That's it. Totally. Yeah. And I think this is why the turn in postmodernism becomes not so much the pursuit of truth as 
um, the revelation of the bubbles <laughs> that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, to see the world as being not really a given, um, to move away from that presumption and to begin the presumption that the world is sort of what we'll make of it. And we make very different things of it according to our desires. Yeah. If, if we can't, if we can't actually get to know what's true about the world, all we're left with are the things that we create, which is why the other part of this knowledge principle is a commitment to cultural constructivism. Right. I can't, I can't get to know reality. All I know are my interpretations and my constructions of reality yeah. alongside other people. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's the only relevant discussion that's worth being had. Yeah. And I think uh, um, when you hear terms like radical skepticism and sort of a movement away from reality, you might think that this is a contrary movement to like the Catholic vision. Um, but in many ways, I think Catholicism is actually m much more sympathetic to this than to the kind of self-assured rationalism um, that you just described. And what, what I mean is when you look at Thomas Aquinas, um, but the medieval tradition especially, there is this sense, a profound sense, of man being unable to know mm -hmm. much at all. <laughs> yeah, when you encounter reality, you're not encountering something that I can make sense of entirely, but you're 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 touching a mystery, an infinite mystery. Yeah, Aquinas says at some point, like it is impossible for a man to know the essence of a single gnat. Now, I love that. <laughs> it's great because I don't know. It's the the gnat. Is I've always wanted to know the essence of a gnat. <laughs> well, well now I never will. No, you never will. Aquinas' point is that you know, if but this is where so it's, that sounds similar to something you might expect from Butler. Like, um, whereas Butler would say something like, "Well, because everything is just in a sort of material flux, and you are simply imposing upon it the forms that make your life livable." So because you need something, you desire something, because will is, is primary, you are going to impose intellectual forms on this material flux and say that I know what a gnat is, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's one revelation of, um, or, or I think that's one route to getting to this kind of skepticism, this radical unknowing, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I, I think but, another way yeah. of, of putting it is both Catholicism and postmodernism acknowledge the mystery. I mean, they wouldn't put it in these terms right, no, uh, sure. that there's infinite unknowing before us, but postmodernism takes the, the cynical route of, and therefore we can't know anything about right. it. Whereas Catholicism takes the route of analogical participation. So, so what it means is, um, you, you know, the gnat, anything is uh, a created gift from God. And as such, um, it, cannot be known as God knows it in his creating of it. God is the one capable of, you might call it like the infinite analysis of any particular creation, but it's just another way of saying he loved it into existence. So it's, it's most properly his. Now we are in a position in which we can um, receive the gift of creation and participate in it, but always with this greater degree of unknowing about what the thing is to God, the only one who can know a thing as it is. So, I mean, another way to say this is we're like thrown into the world as a part of it. So mm -hmm. we are a perspective on creation. We are a particular crafting of creation of how it's going to appear. We are making choices in how we will describe things. It's mm -hmm. like what a horse is, 
um, when we say we know what a horse is, we are in a large part talking about decisions that we have made for how we will historically use horses and deal with horses and understand them. So in a way, uh, Catholicism is, is able to say, yes, we are trapped in the bubble, but this isn't, it's really not that we are, we are trapped. Um, it's that we, we take it on faith that God has revealed himself and, and truth and creation in an intelligible way. And because we are like our creator, in the sense of having an intellect, we can actually encounter the truth of things, even if we can't encounter them in their fullness. Yeah, we can't know them as God knows them, but we can know them in our own mode. And because of the relationship mm-hmm. of ourselves to God, those modes can be connoissant. So we know like God. Um, and it's marvelous. I think it's very, like for me, the reason that then I have a sort of sympathy when I read this is because there is something like initially there's something like unto the experience of profound mystery mm-hmm. where if you've ever been i'm sure everyone's had this experience if you've ever been overwhelmed by like a visual or a conceptual experience where you're you realize there's an infinite depth that you cannot possibly penetrate a reality that's given that exceeds any of your categories that exceeds any of your uses that exceeds anything but um, your pure intellectual reception of it well, then I think you are um, having a positive experience of what I think the postmoderns are sort of taking as a uh, alienated and awful experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of my critiques of the kind of the kind of an aesthetic critique of the postmoderns is that they're just like crying about what other people are <laughs> rejoicing about. But for oh, them, it's because it's because they're getting rid of the theo- theological questions. They've sort of done done away with God in any particular way, and so they're not seeing this stuff as gift. They're not, they're not positing any kind of um, person who knows the thing intimately invites you into his knowledge. Mm-hmm. They're just positing there's stuff and I can't get over my own subjective um, construction of that stuff to appear in a certain way. And so I can't really communicate with my neighbors because we're not existing in mm-hmm. the common truth, the common given. We are um, just in our own bubbles. And so the world becomes scary and violent and everything that doesn't make sense is just further evidence of our own alienation in the world that we don't really fit with the world. We're just that perfectly moves into the second principle. Second postmodern principle is the political principle. This is the belief that society is formed of systems of power and hierarchies, which decide what can be known and how. Mm. So moving from what you were saying, Mark, uh, you have this encounter of the mystery, but this is a terrifying reality because I, I can't actually know it. All I can know are my ideas of it and what culture has constructed of it. And so my the only interactions that I'm really left with are interactions of power. That's why you find postmoderns talking about power so much. This is why um, even even language comes up as being so important because it, it everything becomes reduced to a, a power game or a language yeah. And just game. to slow down on that, like the the reason is because if there's we're, t- we're speaking of power in a um, as the postmoderns might speak of it, which mm-hmm. is with an intentionally negative, violent aspect. Yes. Whereas power within the Catholic tradition, precisely for the difference that we just explained, doesn't actually have any violence to it. It just means capacity. It means potency. Yeah. But, well, really, it gives a, a potency to to act in charity. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. Okay. Well, probably we won't get there, but... <laughs> 
Well, it'll be in the book. Yeah. In the Catholic sure. social teaching book. Oh, awesome. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. great. Um, yes. Do buy that book if you're watching this years from now and it's available. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So, so, so the, Ha, ha, the reason power has this sort of essentially violent aspect is that you can kind of imagine because if we're all only experiencing our own ideas of the world, if, if there's no common truth that we're given and that becomes uh, uh, the basis for our constructing and our thinking being compared, saying like, oh, you think about it this way and I think about it this way is can be an f- opportunity for friendship insofar as you're living within a common world. But if it's really all that is, you only have your alienated subjective and uh, experience that has no relation to the real as a as a given then any supposed convincing of someone else of anything really just becomes a violent ordering of them to share to some extent your will your construction the way you make the world mm-hmm. right so sometimes butler not not to jump into it too quick but sometimes butler will say things like um you know, like my question is not so much to figure out what gender is as to ask what, who is served by having gender be deliberately tied to regular heterosexual relationships or something like that. Yeah, she's she doesn't have an opportunity to investigate the real anymore because that's officially off the table. All you can investigate is power, where it's manifesting, mm-hmm. why it's manifesting. Mm-hmm. That's it. Totally. Uh. Sweet. So those are our two postmodern principles, the knowledge and political principle. And then there's four major themes I think are helpful. Um, I'll just read through them all and then we can go back through them. So it's number one, the blurring of boundaries. Two, the power of language. Three, cultural relativism. And four, the loss of the individual and the universal. So let's start with the blurring of boundaries. Mm -hmm. What is that talking about? Oh, you know, when when you got two things and then someone says they're not that different. I'm just kidding. So, like, <laughs> obviously with Butler, the blurring of boundaries might, I mean, it almost sounds like a sort of immediate critique of the whole project of queer theory. It's like you're, you're blurring mm-hmm. these boundaries. Yeah, it's the, the, the method, I guess, to reveal the political principle to reveal the power dynamics yeah so what it's not is i mean this is where people always get this wrong um what it's not is this argument that what is true is that the boundaries are blurred so what i mean is sometimes you see this where someone you know they want to identify as um genderqueer or something like that and then if you press them on why and what what is it they might give you some response like well, gender isn't as fixed as people say it is. Gender is actually this sort of fluid phenomenon, and they'd go on to describe why, etc. Now, I'm not saying that's not a legitimate argument. What I, what I am saying is that is not the argument that uh, Butler, and really, it doesn't really fit within postmodernism. No. All that argument is is for new boundaries. Yeah, there's just multiple identities. Yeah, now the boundary is fluidity. So now gender is associated with this. So that if I say that it's not fluid, if it's solid in some way, Mm -hmm. I have been wrong about an authentic truth about gender. About some reality that's out there. But again, if we're we're being postmodern, we we can't actually know that thing. It's no more true that it's fluid than that it's solid. So the blurring of boundaries is really just to show you that you you can't get at the thing itself. Yes. You can't actually know what you're talking about 
And so I yeah, don't know. It's more like maybe, a... maybe maybe the male female thing. Maybe that is right. You can't say that for sure. You can't really know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna show you that you can't know because of all these blurred boundaries. Yeah, and when we talk about it in that sense, it's like that it explains a little bit why well, it doesn't explain, but it shows you the context in which. Butler will constantly point to exceptions, limit cases, mm-hmm. um, because what she's going to say is, look, you guys have a, a materialist view. You said that because of these material facts, man is divided into male on this side and female on that side. I'm going to show you where that division point doesn't stand, whether it's through uh, variations within genetics, alterations within anatomy, um, difference in desire. Whatever line you draw, I'm going to show you where there's someone on the wrong – like someone that you think trouble. should be on one side and, and it's in fact on the other. Again, uh, at least ostensibly, no metaphysics is being proposed here. No. no alternative truth is being proposed here. Now, maybe this is, a, this is just an anticipation, but I don't think that the postmodern position in this regard is actually possible. So what I mean to say is – you are always asserting something as true. Mm-hmm. And this is like an old kind of apologetic. Like, how can, you, how can you say there's no truth? Because it must be true that there is no truth. But that's a good, that's a good principle. Mm-hmm. Like, there is... It, really, yeah. really, I think what you're saying is that ultimately the postmodern project cannot be done. No, not at all. You you run you run in it so far that it turns back on itself. It turns back on itself. You end up with a new metaphysics. You end up with a new anthropology. You have fixed boundaries of what the human person is, of what knowledge is, of who God is. You have your theology. You have your history. Um, and this is really what I think. If you read all of Judith Butler, so every single mm-hmm. one of her books, this is what is happening. She is ostensibly saying. Everyone else is wrong, and that's all I'm here to show is that you know none of your categories have any kind of permanent existence. But what she's actually doing is constructing an alternative world that comes from the hand of man. Yeah, which makes sense because it's actually very hard to do that, to, to, to just question and not assert anything. Oh, totally. I mean, the fluidity thing... You have to work really hard. <laughs> well, the fluidity thing, I think, already, like, you might have heard that fluidity argument and been like, no, but you are saying that gender is now something fluid. You can't just say, like... I'm pointing to how it's not solid, but I'm not asserting anything else about it. It's mm-hmm. like, no, you are. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the right impulse is to always look for those places where it's like, what world are you building? Postmodernism is very vulnerable to this because it wants to say, well, because it, it just says like, okay, we're all just constructing the world. It's all just will to power. We're all here, um, you know, seeking our own interests and desires by uh, having regimes of truth where we where we just kind of for some individual uh, satisfaction and purpose we assert something to be true and then we enforce it um okay but if that's what the world is then you're doing it too right no one has a exterior no one has a justifying claim um that comes from anything outside of their own will and that includes this really (laughs) your, your your claim is just well i don't like that Right. Yeah. It becomes individual self-satisfaction, which is essentially why we would associate this stuff with liberalism in the sense that, well, we don't need to, let's keep moving. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll wait on that. Uh, the next one is the power of language. And I find this one really fascinating. And I, once, once you understand the connection between postmodernism and language, then just 
a, a number of things started to make sense in the cultural context, why, why language has suddenly become so important. And it's because the postmodernists have realized that there really is a power in language mm -hmm. because your, your words change the way that you think about things. They begin the way you think about things. I mean, my son asked me what something is and I give him a word. Um, and now he has a world that contains that as, I mean, he, he already had it in some sense, but now he has a human world that contains that as a universal. And I could have lied to him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's uh, terrifying. So, so the words that we, we choose are going to change the way we think. And so, uh, they're, they're really a form of power. This is one of the ways that we culturally, or at least for postmoderns, how we, uh, culturally construct the world because all we have access is access to is our own perspective, yeah. which is really language. We're just talking about language, how we describe things and how we how we see things. So if you can control the language, if you can change the way that things are talked about, then you can gain power that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this because I think yeah. language it draws your attention to things. Um, there's like a, like a dumb post that I think I've seen like floating around Facebook. Like, did you know that, uh, this tribe has a, a hundred words for snow and we only have one. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do, I, it's, it's kind of a silly thing, but I do think it's helpful in seeing that when you have a language that has so many words for one reality, you start to be attentive to all the distinctions that are in that sure. reality. Yeah. Uh, it changes the way that you approach what snow is and how you see it how you interact with it yeah mm -hmm. um and so you have this dynamic interplaying between the world and language so that's a dumb example but i, I do think it helps yeah no i think it shows the the truth of it and again like in a similar way that the catholic and the postmodern are more similar than the catholic and the rationalist because they're both standing before an abyss of unknowing um in a similar way that turn to language is like the most Catholic thing I can think of. I mean, we, <laughs> we worship the word made flesh, yeah. um, our, the entirety of, uh, our understanding of the history of salvation involves a word, the word of God, um, who, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to just like harp on the kind of poetic similarities cause there's obviously a vast difference, but, um, but the idea that, in the word, you have expressed the cultural, personal constructing of reality is a, something shared mm -hmm. by the traditions. The Catholic has no place thinking that there's some kind of inhuman one-to-one -one true word for true object, true sentence for true reality. It's like mm -hmm. um, when – I mean the point that I always turn to is like uh, – why is it even a story within the creation of man that he names all the animals? Um, naming the construction of a pleasing world for God, uh, the establishing of relationships, the saying that you shall be this kind of being to me, you shall be this thing to me, you shall, um, and I will call you this, I will relate to you through this medium. Exactly. Um, I think I, I, I've been thinking yeah. more about that particular instance in seeing language as a way of imaging God as creator. Mm, and yeah. so I, I think that the postmodernists are right, that we do really construct worlds through 
language. And I think that this is not something to be cynical about uh, because then you just reduce it and see it as just power and domination. But this is actually a way of imaging God, of being creators our, ourselves yeah, totally. in, in the world that we've been given to to till and to keep. Yeah, and what you'll see is the, the kind of mark of difference between this turn to the word on both is that, again, the language use within the postmodern tradition is a violence. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Judith Butler in one of her essays on Kierkegaard even, even says this about the book of Genesis, that there's a certain, um, she says that Adam seems to usurp the divine power when he names all these animals. And I think that's exactly what a postmodern would have to say, is that given that your subjective experience is all you have, you're naming of it and then through power uh, telling people that this is in fact the name that you and I are going to use, this becomes simply a violent imposition of meaning upon a meaningless cosmos. Um, Exactly. And for your own sake. So there's some kind of reason, I suppose, for doing it. Um, And so... And so when they look at the word, like when Butler looks at the words like male and female and man or woman, she's always asking, okay, who implements this? Who does it exclude? How is this utilized to negate other possibilities? Um, but in the uh, in the Catholic understanding of the use of the word, uh, it doesn't have that violent aspect because what man is created is precisely as the being that God waits to name the cosmos. He, it's by the gift of God, by a prior gift that he names. So he names within the creation of God. Um, and when Adam says, this shall be a lion or whatever, um, <laughs> um, it's not a violent imposition of Adam's will over and against a cosmos that exceeds him. It's almost it's as him if... him being a shepherd as he was created to be. It's like God put the namer in the cosmos so there's a there's a naturalness to his naming it's fitting um that he builds the world and that he makes it particular and that he um orders it into a pleasing construction and that's what i was going to say as well it's kind of weird because the postmodern critique almost has to view man as not being a part of creation and naming as not being a natural thing but but we find ourselves in the cosmos already uh Naming is is a cosmic reality already. Mm-hmm. This doesn't do violence to the cosmos. It's no. it's a part of it. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to move on to the sure. last yeah. the last ones. The last one is the loss of the individual and the universal. So the loss of the universal is obvious already because if if we can't get to know actual realities, we can't make universal statements. We can't say, oh, this is a dog, this is a dog, this is a dog, this is a dog. That's really just a cultural construction. It's useful for me for understanding the world, but in no way does that mean that I understand what, what that thing really is. Right. You, like what All that really is, I mean, as, as much as you can say anything from the postmodern perspective, is this flux, is this material um, flux in which there are no universal intelligible forms. Um, and this just is some ways on what it means to be in, in some ways, this is what it means to just avoid the question of the creator or to deny um, the existence of creation by just saying the kind of weird new atheist turn of just like, well, I'm pretty sure it's just always been there. Or maybe it's going through a wormhole on repeat or something. And it's that they don't realize is that what this 
takes away is any particular reason for intelligible um, universal forms. So the ability to say something like cats, dogs, um, because w what is it except for the human intellect that looks at two material blobs and says, and these are both the same. <laughs> yeah. Cause they're not as, as material. If all there is material, then the one thing that you can say, and you can barely even say it is that they're not the same because they're materially distinct. One's over there. One's over here. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it, it does get rid of the universal. Fair. Cool. Should know we're kind of collapsing materialism and postmodernism in some ways, which I think is largely fair. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't be a postmodernist without being a materialist. Yeah, the mark of being done with with postmodernism is to start converting and believing in things like which they do. So sometimes it gets confusing because like I, I think like people start to convert in their writings who we think of as they're the postmoderns, like someone like Foucault. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we're like, oh, you can be a postmodern and and like believe in spirit or something or it's like well no 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 you can't um well one other point that that's not written down in, in this book but i think is is helpful to make sense of the construction and language is um a, an emphasis on narrative mm. narrative is a really big deal for yeah. uh postmodern thinking because narrative the stories that we tell ourselves is the way that we continue on the cultural construction uh, it's the way that we initiate other people into this like power grid hierarchy of how the world ought to be conceived. Yeah. Um, and, and this too, I think is also exciting for uh, a Catholic reading postmodernism is because we've, we've gone full circle again, because we've gone through the, the curve of dismissing narrative. We want objective reality. We want facts. And then it turns out that if you keep following that, further that really we're back into narratives again yeah because the narratives determine which facts appear and how they appear yeah i mean because you know the catholic lives within salvation history we live within a story mm -hmm. the significance of things is not apart from history um contrary to what some people would like to believe about the world so the the narrative of the creation the fall the redemption um, and really every act, every historical act that constitutes these larger, these larger movements. Um, this is a determination of the cosmos into a particular shape. This is a determination of intelligible forms of life into like what becomes intelligible to us, what's available to us. Um, and from the Catholic perspective, this properly speaking is always a movement into deeper and deeper truth um, because the narrative is actually the narrative of um, the church uh, triumphant, like becoming the world, becoming more and more converted, more and more conformed to um, so that the constructions that we're building in our own history is, is proper and fitting to the in right re of God. relation with the reality that God created. Right, exactly. And we can do this in part because we have been gifted with an intellect and so we can participate in God's knowledge. And we also do this through revelation. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Yeah. And I think when I, there's a reason why um, for my own thought on gender, it's ultimately a turn to the biblical narrative. It's not just because I'm, I mean, I'm sure this will be a critique. Is that like, well, you have all of these biological questions and existential problems. And then you're like, Back to the book of Genesis. 
Um, but I think that part of it being a response to postmodernism is to say like, okay, you want to say that everything is just competing narratives instituted by various powers in order to construct the world? Sure. Fine. I've got a narrative for you. I've got a power for you. I've got a construction of the world for you. It's the church and it wants to construct the world in a certain way. And it's a power, like it can do that. Um, mm -hmm. And it converts people like from their worlds and their language into itself. Um, and it does this within a narrative that is actually um, arguing, well, not arguing, it's the narrative is the meaning of the cosmos. It's saying that they have the true narrative. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, I would then make the caveat that it really is true and that uh, it's not violent because it's perfectly in harmony with human flourishing and blah, blah, blah. But I'm just saying on the face of it, what postmodernism does is it allows Catholicism to actually argue for itself because yeah, exactly. all right, it's all narrative. So check out this narrative. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that the postmodernists can can actually make that full full leap, but it does give Catholicism a, a stage on which to be an actual contender yeah. in the because intellectual the worst, discourse. The worst they can say to you is like, oh, but that's like a really violent imposing narrative that I hate. And it's like, fine, yeah, yours is a violent imposing one that I hate. We just happen to have at this point in history, more de facto power to have more people believe this narrative than your narrative. Like, so the there, there is no argument against Catholicism except for I don't like it. Sure, I think yeah. when you when you're reducing it a lot. Right. So then I don't like that power dynamic. Right. So then then the evangelical work or the, or the work of trying to make Catholicism make sense is to say, okay, given that, um, is there anything different about this narrative? Is there anything different about this power? Is there anything different about this? language this construction this world building activity um and then we hope for well i hope for the grace of god to work on people in and through that discussion but um yeah no i do think it's much more familiar territory to the faithful catholic than the world of like scientific objective debate on i don't know some objective truth that's ahistorical and, and unrelated to salvation and revelation and all that. Is that, is that fair? I mean, that's sort of how I feel. I'm not saying it's like yeah, a, yeah. I, an emotion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been moving in that direction and it's, it's been getting me really excited to see a, a growth of postmodern Christian thinkers who are, are entering into um, this idea that the world does not actually lay itself out in these objective facts that I can get to in an unbiased manner. This is actually impossible. And being able to engage with that and saying this is not something that has to lead you to utter despair because that's one option. Um, but this is this is how the world lays itself out. It does lay itself out in in narrative and through value and through our own perspective, and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. No. No, I don't think so. Okay, so that's roughly our understanding of postmodernism, um, which obviously is entirely inadequate compared to, you know, just like everything else, it's a yes. <laughs> phenomenon that has an infinite abyss of un unmeaning behind it that only God knows. Um, but that helps us turn to, to Judith. And I think uh, possibly as far as we want to get in the text is trying to understand what she's doing in in the work um yeah we can stick with the preface and then kind of move on from there 
Um, so one place where I'll just read um, that oh, I have a little there it is um, that hopefully with that previous discussion we can understand not necessarily agree with this as a good project to undertake but we can understand what she's the, actually doing yeah what she's up to so she says clearly this project does not propose to lay out within traditional philosophical terms an ontology of gender whereby the meaning of being a woman or a man is elucidated within the terms of phenomenology. Um, the presumption here... So, that makes sense, right? Yeah. Okay. The presumption here is that the being of gender is an effect, an object of a genealogical investigation that map, maps out the political parameters of its construction in the mode of ontology. So, what's being said here is that the... Sense that gender is a substantive reality, that there are men and there are women, um, is an effect of language, of power. It's something achieved by man-made means, right? So we have ordered the world in such a way we have violently gotten enough people to assent to beliefs to live out certain habitual modes in order for it to appear as true that there are men and women only men and women an exclusive male female binary or or maybe another way of looking at it too is that to move from the postmodern principles if we can't really know reality as it is uh then all we're left with is is cultural constructions. And so we have this binary that's before us. And so the question is not what is really true about this thing. The question is, where's the power? Yeah. Who is it serving? And she goes on in that way. So she says, to claim that gender is constructed is not to assert its illusoriness or artificiality, where those terms are understood to reside within a binary that counterposes the real and the authentic, as oppositional. Um, so she's doing something different with real. But the, the point is, um, when, in my experience of like how queer theory actually matriculates down to like the kind of high school level in which people are starting to identify as queer or identify as trans or otherwise um, sort of start to do this work, this liturgical work of troubling the, the male-female binary, um, they are often doing precisely what Butler says is not happening here. Yeah, it's Namely, not possible. they are constructing it. They are, uh, when they say gender is constructed, they are asserting its artificiality. So they're saying something like, you know, my true experience of self is this. Um, and mm -hmm. this is as opposed to this artificial conception of man and woman um, as the only options or whatever. Um, my real experience is, um, so So in, in that mode, like when I talk about like a naive queer theory, that mode is fundam fundamentally um, Christian in the sense of it's truth-seeking. Mm -hmm. It's taking as a given the that it's in opposition to a lie that can be opposed by honesty, by virtue. Um, and it seeks to attain a stability of identity. Um, it's looking for something real. Yeah, absolutely. And claiming that 
this 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 identity that I'm I'm claiming is a real identity. Mm-hmm. But that's precisely what Butler says you can't do. Right. Now it is useful for that to happen on a, like a cultural level for queer theorists because those people doing those acts yeah. do in fact assist in troubling the gender binary. Right. And that's exa- exa- well, they haven't been so bold as to say that they're they're using young people in this way. Um, but it does have the effect that there's a disconnect mm-hmm. between what's happening with young people who are saying, I identify as genderqueer. I identify as, um, I use it as the only example, pansexual, because it could apply to um, sexual desire as well. Um, there's this disconnect where, you know, the queer theorists are kind of laughing. They're like, oh, you identify as. Oh, you found some new substance. Oh, you're you have a noun. You have like a experience of being. Um, they've already done away with all this. Like, it's it's all artifice. You're you're not. Um, you haven't gotten in touch with any more authentic truth within the material flux. But what it does is when that proliferates, it um, the goal is to again, it's just an enmity based goal. People who think that. There is only male and female who have this just simply dominant narrative, like a historically mm-hmm. dominant narrative, are further troubled because they have to deal with people claiming that the binary is um, insufficient. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go that that cynical. I, I don't know if there's a, a complete disconnect there. Um, like I, 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 I'm not confident that there's like laughing behind the scenes, but yeah. I think. Uh, the 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 goal that i'm i'm picking up from butler is that um none of this matters these these cultural constructions are not true i want to experience freedom and the power to construct my own reality yeah or to construct one that's more favorable to me and so the young people who are part of this this project it's going to benefit them too Right, because they're achieving their individual desire. So even if they do think that I have mm-hmm. achieved a real identity, mm-hmm. um, as long as as long as uh, they're they're moved in such a place where they have the power to express and create their own cultural construction, I think the thought is no harm, no foul. Sure. Yeah, and then and then by that more charitable read, it's more of a continuation of the like liberal project, namely. I do want something positive and that's the satisfaction of as most individuals desires and wills mm-hmm. as possible. Yeah. I but I, I do think it's important that what's going on in, in actual queer theory is not that these identities are, are real, but none of them are. Mm-hmm. She says as a genealogy of gender ontology, this in- inquiry seeks to understand the discursive production of the plausibility of that binary relation. Um, so how did we produce the conditions in which it seemed plausible, apparently for so many years, that there are only males and females? Um, and to suggest that certain cultural configurations of gender take the place of the real and consolidate and augment their hegemony through that felicitous self-naturalization. Um, yeah, so I mean, we don't need to keep on beating the same thing over uh, over the head, but it, it's... The appearance of something as natural, she is saying, is mm-hmm. is there is no nature. Nothing comes as given. Um, so how do we get things to appear as natural? So I think it would be helpful to use the terminology that she uses. So in the, the preface that I'm working with, she starts talking about the genealog- 
genealogical critique. Yeah. So her goal, um, again, to, to quote her, is to expose the categories of sex, gender, and desire as effects mm-hmm. of power, of formations of power. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about all this before. And so in order to do that, uh, she cites a, a form of critical inquiry that Foucault reformulating Nietzsche designates as genealogy. And so a genealogical critique is one that's trying to investigate power and power structures, power dynamics, um, how, how, what power produced this dynamic in the first place, where's the power being moved towards, who is it serving? Mm-hmm. That, that is the project of gender trouble. Yeah, totally. And I think that the one of the great difficulties um, that the Catholic finds is that there is a sphere in which the postmoderns are correct, and it's hell. It's the sphere of sin. What I mean by that is like the violent imposition of meaning on people apart from any notion of creation does happen in fact oh, within, I see what you're saying. within the God-given cosmos that Catholics are presuming. It's just that we see it as sin. So there is a way in which um, Butler, Foucault, Nietzsche can be right about a sinful society. So what someone like Andrew Jones was to say, they're right about the city of man. They're just wrong about the city of God or something like that. Mm. Um, so, and, and what, what's troublesome for me as a Catholic is I do think that we live under a regime of gender normativity where a certain view of gender has been um, artificially pushed as natural. Um, and I do think it's the appropriate object of what you just called genealogical critique. Like, let's find out what man is producing here. Hmm. What is the man-made production here? Um, so in one way, just to, to sort of think about this or, or to maybe get an insight into, into what I'm, what I'm trying to argue is that Catholics have always known that we have an odd we usually express it just as we have an odd view of gender and sex and such. Um, and it's most evident in our valuation of celibacy and virginity. Oh, I see. Okay. So what I mean is like, we have a, if you just consider the narratives, we have a narrative, we have a particular language and a particular, um, worldview that ends with us saying that the best thing that a person can do highest thing that a person can do with their sexual difference, which is a biological and procreative reality, mm-hmm. is to not use it. Or rather, um, to enter into the state of what we would call the religious life. So virginity is is a higher calling. It's a higher vocation. It's, a, it's more proper to um, human flourishing and to the end of the human person um, than is marriage procreation. Yes, so okay. it's... So this is odd, <laughs> I would say. Um, and I think that... And, and I really, really want to get to the point in the podcast where I where we do a genealogical critique of the destruction of the religious life and of celibacy as an ideal, because I think that's actually what's happening here, is that um, 
we have made, well, let's put it this way. With the rise of Protestantism, those, the power shifts, there's a new narrative, and basically those forms of life are no longer understood as intelligible. So There's no place for them. No place for celibacy, no place for, for sanctified virginity, no, no place for understanding sexual difference as being orientated to something transcendent of procreation and marriage, something that renders procreation and marriage into a sign of something greater, which is what we just read at the beginning with exactly. Pope John Paul II. So when I read again, and I'm just trying to point to the sympathy here, because when when Judith Butler says something like this, she says, of her genealogical critique, what continues to concern me most is the following kinds of questions. What will and will not constitute an intelligible life? How do presumptions about normative gender and sexuality determine in advance what will qualify as livable? In other words, how do normative gender presumptions work to delimit the field of description that we have for the human, for her, for her she's talking about the human person? And the reason I think there's a sympathy here is that um, a Catholic is actually raised to understand this because we live in a world in which... Um, what constitutes an intelligible life for us is utterly at odds with what constitutes an intelligible life for the world. Um, what like, do you mean by that? Well, I mean that the very simple fact that for us, um, celibacy is the positive use of sexual difference towards an end that's even higher than um, marriage and procreation means that we are living within a narrative that is by others declared unlivable, unintelligible. It is unintelligible. If you try to explain it to people, you can see this. Like this is, you need to convert in some way to understand why this would make any sense at all. And so when she talks about deliberate and violent constraints of what uh, is intelligible or, or visible, like the construction of normative gender as a man-made artifice that doesn't have that kind of relation to the created given, on the one hand, we could say, oh, you're like being atheistic. On the other hand, I think we do, in fact, live in that world. So so what you're saying is that the the world that we've been moving towards and, and culturally constructing has been like slowly reducing the meaning of human sexuality into the purely oriented towards procreation to the point where yes. something like the celibate life is useless and unintelligible, whereas yep. that's not the tradition of the church. Totally. Yeah, I think queer theory is a reaction against Protestantism, not Catholicism. Fascinating. So, so they'll look at this and say things like, we live in a heterosexual matrix that's all ordered towards uh, reproduction. Like the reason why this violent imposed narrative has become dominant and we all have to conform to the male-female binary through all these habitual actions and dresses and forms and blah, blah, blah. That all of this is for the sake of reducing this, whatever it is, uh, this meaning that they're not going to talk about much, but to procreation, for the sake of procreation. And then they'll have different interpretations of why, like for the mm -hmm. Marxist thinkers, they'll say like, well, you need procreation for labor, you need labor for money. So this is for the capitalists, you know? Yeah. And you um, can, you can have multiple. Yeah. But the point, the point is like, I just don't think the Catholic is in a position to say like, that's ridiculous. Cause it's like, no, you actually live in a world in which it has been constructed for something you cherish 
as the end and proper, like, most fulfilling use of sexual difference has been rendered unintelligible, not by a, a sort of conversion of hearts to the truth or a deeper, um, you know, engagement with reality as it is given or anything like that, but by, uh, well, by, I was going to say by Protestantism, that's, that sounds mean, I suppose, but that's what I mean, like by an aggressive, powerful um, rise of um, liberal states um, that render this sort of thing unthinkable. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is there's a sympathy there, right? Like I think that um, anyone who is thinking about the oddness of what Catholics think we should do with gender <laughs> should probably have sympathy to the idea that the larger world, which we know doesn't understand us is asserting something um, for ends that are not greater access into the truth and mystery of the cosmos. All right. Well, I think, I think we'll leave it there. Oh, will we? <laughs> Sorry, that was a. Somebody... Was there was there anything no, else I mean, in the preface that the you wanted to? Go on. Yeah, I should probably. I, I think I think we got to the heart of, uh, the heart of the preface, or at least we we know from her what she's trying to do in the book, which is essential yeah. for moving okay. forward. And we also know her background. Yeah. Um, because if you don't understand postmodernism, it really does not make sense. And and you read it and you're like, she's asserting all these ridiculous things yeah. until you realize that she's actually not really asserting anything at all. Yeah. Yeah. And someplace she has this, um, she talks about how the very desire for someone to tell us something true and solid about gender is what produces it, which sounds kind of odd, but you can think of it in terms of like, um, the world that we're given involves this sort of panicky sense about gender. Like you can just, you know, this just because of the reactions. Like people don't mm -hmm. have like, people oh, are calm. There's someone that thinks she's a woman. And I think she's a man. Do, 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 moving on. It's like existential. It's infuriating or vice versa. Like this is a person who I've told my experience of gender to, and they think that I'm like a sinner or whatever. And it's just, mm -hmm. it's just immensely, um, it's immensely difficult. So I think, what she seems to be saying um, is that, and I don't think she does a great job in saying why is it that we long for solidity within um, gender norms, not just within our own age, but seemingly historically have looked for this. Uh, it seems like it's too much to say that there's no pattern of seeking out substantive gender as um, a reality. And, I think in general that is the problem with the the postmodern approach is because humans are very strange because if the world is not a world of universals, why is it that we seek out patterns? Why is it that we move towards stability? Why is it that the way that we literally need to survive is by creating these constructions? Yeah, and they'll try to turn this on its head by saying, well, we just create them because we need them to survive. But then our question is, well, why? Why are we that kind of being that needs the, the creation of meaning in, in order to survive if at the what very, is is supposed to be meaning is, is meaningless? At the very least, it's very mysterious that the universe would produce a creature that would need to create 
a false right. vision of its own reality in order to survive. Yeah. So she says like something like the anticip the anticipation of an an authoritative disclosure of meanings is the means by which that authority is attributed and installed. It seems to be like it is a circle, right? She knows that. Um, but it it's that moment where I have this doubt about the project because it's like, um, why not just say that we do long for an authoritative disclosure of meaning because, <laughs> um, because there is meaning and because we really are saved by finding meaning. Mm-hmm. And this is not arbitrary or violent or imposing, but is in fact who we are in the cosmos. She says, going on, I wonder whether we do not labor under a similar expectation concerning gender, that it operates as an interior essence that might be disclosed, an expectation that ends up producing the very phenomenon that it anticipates. So she's describing a longing to be identified as a gender, that that longing that produces the very gender that it longs for because it wants it so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, like, I think there's a certain jump here because it's the question that I always have is, well, why are we, why are we beings that long to find out who we are and long for this in terms of our sexual differentiation? Because no matter how distant the particular gender you identify with is from the male, female binary, it's only intelligible as what it is by that relation. Why is it that we long for, why are we so troubled by um, not having uh, a solid authoritative sense of meaning um, when it comes to gender? Why do we produce it if it's so, yeah. So in some ways, I'm just trying to cut the circle and say, I think it's just as reasonable to say that we are people longing for it because that's who we are. Um, And that it's real. Yeah. But that the postmodern project since you have to discount those explanations it's going to say well you're longing for it and in longing for it you're producing it as an object um again to just turn and just say look it's all man it's all man there's nothing given the world becomes an enclosed circle and you can't get out and it's just it's not even an enclosed circle it's descending spiral yeah okay then we can finish. Okay. So next time, we're going to keep going through uh, Judith Butler here. Again, there's, as you can tell, many questions, and we hope to answer them all. We are taking responses as seriously as they deserve, <laughs> which I think is very seriously. So if you have something you want us to address, um, please go ahead and comment or send us an email. Um, but it might not come in in an immediate order because we're trying to again trod that path of understanding going from where we were to where we arrived with you guys um so next time we're going to keep reading butler we're going to have a special emphasis on her what's called like the theory of performativity um because that's sort of i think crucial to understanding both butler but then queer theory as a whole um and i think we should be able to do the book in three episodes that's my sense yeah, I think so. Cool. And then and then we'll move on from there. So I hope you read along with us, and we look forward to hearing from you. Bye.